The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. Hello, I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new non-fiction books. My guest today is Alexandra Horowitz, whose new book, Unlooking, Eleven Walks with Expert Eyes, has just been published by Scribner. Alexandra, thanks for coming into the Slate studio to talk about it. Such a pleasure. Thank you. So this book is about perception and awareness and really attending to your surroundings, kind of learning to look. How did you go about heightening your awareness? Well, I initially had the idea proposed to me by my dog, essentially, walking around the block a lot with first a female dog and then the the two male dogs who we currently live with. I realized how little I was seeing of their world, right, as any dog owner probably appreciates. Um, They're living in a little parallel universe. And it occurred to me that I could probably enrich all my walks around the block by taking lots of different perspectives, not just different species perspectives, but other people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. And the way I got those perspectives was by taking people with me. So I got some ideas in mind of the types of topics I was interested in and then really just cold called people and asked, would you walk around the block with me? And to my surprise, many of them said they would. And I'm so glad they did because it's the kind of book that you read and then you start to Mm. inevitably look at things differently. But you are indeed a professional observer in a way. Your day job involves observing animals, right? Absolutely, right. I um, am an ethologist, I would say, which means that I look at animal behavior and my interest is really in animal mind. But of course, Most animals, besides the human animal, are very reticent about telling us what's on their mind. And so instead we look at behavior and we try to make inferences about mind. And this requires looking pretty closely, looking beyond the first pass understanding of what an animal is doing. So usually watching behavior again on videotape slowed down so that Mm. you can see it from a foreign perspective, essentially. And so it's especially interesting given that you knew what you were doing. You were very conscious of this project that you were undertaking. And so your first walk, you were really trying to look extra hard. Right. But you discovered as you did more of these walks that actually that was still quite a superficial look that you were giving the world. Absolutely. I, I failed to see <laughs> very much at all. And I didn't quite reprimand myself. What I realized is that you require somebody to bring something to your attention. And you can do that yourself. You can decide, oh, I'm going to go and look at the branches of trees. And suddenly you see a lot more in branches of trees just because that's the thing you've brought your attention to. You can also bring someone who knows a bit about it. An arborist will then show you many things that you can't Mm -hmm. discover yourself. But even just turning your own attention was required. And I was doing this broad swath look Mm -hmm. at everything. And what that means is that you just see what you ordinarily see, basically, maybe a little bit more. Right. Not anything surprising. But as you point out, we humans, we have to intentionally tune out some of the signals because there are so many, we're constantly receiving them, and we would go crazy mm. if we didn't 
focus and put on some kind of blinders to at least some of the stimulus that we're receiving, right? Agreed. Yeah, it's adaptive for us to ignore a lot of the stimuli around us so that we only notice the new alarming thing, right? Right. Not not all the ordinary things that aren't food, aren't <laughs> something new to eat or right. something new that's trying to eat us, or et cetera, or dangers or interests. And on the other hand, even with this heightened attention, you can always turn it off too, right? right? And I don't certainly don't spend all of my walks now with this intention of mine, but I know if at any moment I can I can turn it on if I'd like. So your first walk was with your son, who was an infant right. at the time, and having him decide what to focus his attention on to sort of steer the walk, that was a challenge because infants' attention is, to say the least, very different from adults, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's quite scattered. <laughs> what James, William James called it, the blooming, buzzing confusion of infancy. And I tend to think he's right on about that. I don't think that, you know, they're humans, but they're nothing like little adult humans. I, the sensory stimuli is not being organized in the same way. And so a lot of what you do as a parent is is try to organize their understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. But so on our walk, I tried not to organize his understanding of the world and didn't show him how a walk is taken. Instead, mm-hmm. I let him just move through a space and see what captured him. And that was, as it always is, if I, if you let yourself do that, really enjoyable. One of the big differences between him, infant, and us, adults, was that he really didn't know how to ignore things, or he chose not to ignore things. Right. And some things that I would think are interesting, he would seem to ignore, but I don't think he's, he didn't see their relevance, right? Yeah, he yeah, didn't yeah. see their salience. But for instance, he was very interested in staring at people who looked... Um, disorderly or we're having a problem walking or and we don't stare at those people right we know too much to stare at them but they are interesting Mm -hmm. we are interested in looking and Mm -hmm. knowing about it but societally socially we suppress that interest indeed and you pointed out that your son like all infants apparently was very interested in new things he always notices the new thing in the room and i think that's probably some vestigial animal impulse that we have a lot of animals have a kind of neophilia Mm -hmm. and sometimes adults have it too right but if we're not looking out then we're not going to see the new thing so he was always on to the thing that had changed since he was last in the room or last in a space and that's fun because you realize how much has changed and it's exciting that he's recognized that yeah so life for him or your walk was almost like one of those big spot the differences <laughs> tests, right? <laughs> I spotted three differences. And maybe that's why children are so good at that, right? right? They're so right. excited about it. The walks that you were taking, you were taking where you live, which is New York City. And so you wanted to learn to pay attention to geology because as Sidney Hornstein, the guy that you walked with, pointed out, the world is composed of minerals and biomass. Right. That is all we are and, and all we it. shall be. Yes, exactly. And we're just in one stage of it now, but there's a lot of evidence for the past stages of it um, around us. And I didn't think of the city as full of geology because I tend to think of, I don't know, crazily, I think of geology as a natural right. environment thing. And we're not in a natural environment, it feels like, in a, in a city, in this mm. artificial city. But of course, it's it's just hued of stone. And what's not stone is, is as you say, biomass or living things. You pointed out that when you're with an expert or you are an expert in something, it's much harder to turn off your senses. So, for example, when I was working as a copy editor, I couldn't not see 
problems. You know, even if I was at a ballpark <laughs> or if I was on the subway, there's always some typo that you're noticing. <laughs> so that came out particularly in that walk, it seemed. We'll never turn it off, right? Yeah. That's his expertise. That's that's now changed his brain sufficiently so that perceptually that's how he organizes the world. And, of course, I can turn it off because I don't have all the expertise he does. But I can notice, boy, there's something. These two rocks are considerably different. These two marble stones on a building are lined up so the veins are the same. I mean, that's an interesting kind of attention that mm-hmm. someone took. Um, and then, of course, things like limestone I now can see, which I just didn't know about. I didn't realize it was full of these little skeletal creatures from the sea, from the sediment of the sea from so long ago. And it's amazing. It's all over the place. And no one looks at this. Few people look at it. And it's exciting to me to see it. I know we're not going to have time to talk about all the walks, but uh, one that interested me a lot was you walked with the artist Myra Kalman, um, who's also a friend of yours. And because of the way she looks at things or the way she sees things, she kind of took you to places you hadn't visited before, even in your own neighborhood. Right. She. We walked the original blocks I had walked, and she repeated them with me and walked into spaces that I, living in that neighborhood, had never walked into in many years of living there. And it would never have occurred to me to walk into them because, as I say somewhere else, I feel like because we live here and we're not tourists in, our, in this environment – we treat it as uninteresting. But, of course, it is somebody else's vacation, even the neighborhood where I lived. And they would walk into the church or they might poke their head in the social workers building or the little museum or whatever it is. And she followed her curiosity, and that took her through spaces, which I considered private spaces but weren't all private. She crossed some space boundaries, which were interesting. And by crossing them, she made me aware of those space boundaries, the public-private space boundaries that were always navigating on on a sidewalk in a city. And that was really interesting to me because, I mean, for example, she kind of led you into this building that was a a kind of a group for black social workers, which Mm -hmm. I don't believe that Myra's black, (laughs) and I know neither of you are social workers, especially if it's space with people who don't have a lot of space. Mm. That's another reason to respect it. We have the rest of the world. Why would we go into their space? Absolutely. And she was cautious, uh, but the door was open, and we walked (laughs) in, and they were excited to see us. You know, they had a lot of public events. It was senior social workers as well, and neither of us were... (laughs) <laughs> really matched that in any way. But they were delighted to see us and would have welcomed us had we sat down and joined the bingo game, it yeah. seems to me. Yeah. Um, so you're right, and I think she's aware of that. But she doesn't let that concern stop her from approaching a right. scene, I guess. Right. Yeah. And you see a lot more when you just at least bother to see if if your hesitation is appropriate. Right. It's good just to sort of question those spaces, right, and what, sure. how we move around in these places that seem very familiar. Let's just pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. I'm happy to say that On Looking is available unabridged on Audible with Alexander herself as the narrator. It runs eight hours and 56 minutes. What was it like to read your own words aloud, Alexander? (laughs) Formidable. (laughs) 
formidable. It took a long time, I take it. It usually does, I guess. It does, but not that much longer than eight hours and 56 minutes. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download Unlooking, Alexandra's number one New York Times bestseller, Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell and Know, are one of the other books available on Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit. audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Scribner has very kindly given us four copies of On Looking to give away to listeners. And Alexandra will sign them. If you would like one, send an email with the words looking giveaway in the subject line to slateafterward at gmail.com by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, January 25th, 2013. And we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. I'm talking with Alexandra Horowitz, author of the new book Unlooking, 11 Walks with Expert Eyes. You did one of your walks with a bug guy. Right. <laughs> I forget what bug guys are called. <laughs> I'm not sure. He calls himself a naturalist, but I think of him as an insect tracker. Right. And you didn't even get to walk very far to find all kinds of evidence of insect activity. In fact, there were so many bugs that you kind of could have stayed within just a very small distance, right? Sure. I, he does describe heading out on a tour with a friend to see exotic bugs in a woodland and not getting out past the parking lot for many hours. And I kind of hoped that would happen, but we did end up walking around a block. The walk with Charlie Eisman was quite surprising. I did not think of myself as surrounded by the kind of bugs that he saw right away. His first strategy to find bugs was essentially, or the sign of bugs, the indication that bugs were recently there, Mm. was to look on the underside of a leaf. And that's an easy thing for anybody to do in their city. And you see, hmm, the type of I mean, maybe egg cases or aphids, aphids, I guess, um, or actual little bugs living there or some sign that they've been there, a yeah. leaf mine or a gall or just a little hole, a little punctuative hole. Yeah. And the variety and omnipresence of these guys was impressive, really yeah. impressive. Until it's pointed out it's just more stuff in the world yeah and all of the experts i walked with were really in some way obsessive this was what they were interested in seeing all the time and so they did but you point out something interesting which is that i didn't become an expert by seeing these so i can't tell you always once in a while but always what kind of fly made that leaf mine i don't you know i can't tell although i know where to look it up which is always as a former fact checker, that was really just as good as having the knowledge yourself. But having a name for something, having yeah. a name for even the mine, the, which is a little trail along a leaf that maybe a little nymph of a fly would have eaten its way out of its case yeah. through, that allows you to see it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It organizes perception where it hadn't before. We urban dwellers are also surrounded by vertebrate wildlife, rats, raccoons, squirrels, possums, pigeons... These animals are actually trying to elude us, even though we're essentially feeding them. And if you pay attention, you can see them 
all around. You can. And this is the one that I think more people are aware of on some level, right? Certainly certainly the rats, yes, um, which people seem not to mention, but are incredibly successful. And they're only here because of us. Right. They follow us and we, we feed them, as you say. And so they continue to follow us. If we stop feeding them, they would stop following us. <laughs> I know that there are rats everywhere in New York City. If I'm on the subway... I almost don't mind seeing them on the tracks. That's where they live in my head. But if they're ever on the platform, that feels creepy. That feels just wrong. And it doesn't happen all that rarely, or it happens less rarely than it should. Yeah, it's alarming because we feel like we have dis- we have drawn a line between their space and ours. But they're definitely on the platform when few people are there, right? right. I mean, their life is a little bit of a parallel experience where they're going to be more out at night and we're... We- more or less go to sleep at night so they're on the platform then and they also don't know about these boundaries we draw (laughs) they haven't heard about that somebody needs to tell them about that (laughs) pronto and there's a wonderful chapter when you discuss the incredible way that people instinctively avoid each other in very densely populated spaces busy streets times square all those places they just instinctively move around each other so how do we not constantly walk into people. I kind of do, but I know that most people don't. <laughs> a little bump, I think, is not is not too much of an abuse. But essentially, these are the same types of rules that schools of fish follow or swarms of insects or um, flocks of birds, which is to be attracted to other members of the species. So stay with others. So farming a group, avoiding bumping, basically by keeping an eye out for each other and keeping whatever that personal distance is mm-hmm. apart from others. And then aligning. So Letting someone ostensibly lead you, Mm -hmm. even though they aren't thinking of themselves as the leader. So following. Mm -hmm. And then someone is following you and and et cetera and to your side and to your side. And those are all the rules you have to put into an artificial system of mindless little bots in a computer program to get them to act just like pedestrians act on a sidewalk and just like birds act in a swooping flock. As you point out, these instinctive rules are kind of changing these days because – now so many of us are talking on the phone. Right. Why does that make a difference? The texters and the phone talkers change this because they stop looking, essentially. They literally stop looking, so they don't even have their peripheral vision on. Uh-huh. Um, their, their heads are down, usually. Or if they're looking up on their phone, they're actually not looking out their eyes. They're sort of glassed over eyes. And so then they can't see the people to align with. They can't see the people to make small adjustments to avoid. Uh uh And they also kind of veer across. They really betray the alignment rule. So they (laughs) veer across sidewalk. So alignment allows people going to and fro to create columns of traffic going to and fro. We all know that's what happens. You you slip into a little column. And that's how people get up the subway stairs and down the subway stairs when the train is just arriving. They're veering across that. And so then that creates a big obstruction right away. And so imagine if you have lots of obstructions at once, you just have then a chaotic scenario instead of smoothly flowing traffic. And talking on the phone is different from talking with a friend. On the surface, it seems like walking and talking on the phone aren't that much different from walking and talking with your friend. Like you're, yeah. you're, you're, dis- you're similarly distracted. Right. But something about there that. There seems to be a certain kind of attention, and it's uh-huh. been studied yeah, well, yeah. that is required to process this monaural stimulus. Right, right. Um, which also has no other affiliated gestures to it, right? So all right. the information you're getting from the person on the phone is the sound. Yeah. 
Whereas when you're sitting next to someone else, there's all sorts of visual stuff going on, a lot of cues going mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. And even the presence, your presence near each other is some sort of assurance that the right. conversation is continuing. And so right. all those things help the conversation go along. And if you don't have them, then you, I think you need to be even more focused on what's in your ear. And so your attention, whatever this elusive attention is, really is drawn into your ear as opposed to looking. So remember, everyone, when you're walking in, a, in the city, look where you're going. <laughs> you talk with a lot of really fascinating people. It's a great chapter with Arlene Gordon, who's blind. Uh, you took a walk with her. You took a walk with Dr. Bennett Lorber, an expert diagnostician, a doctor. Um, but since we're running out of time, I just want to get to the final walk, which you took with your dog, your one of your current dogs, Finnegan. And that chapter made me realize that smell is the dog's superpower. I may be using this number wrong, but it seems like they have millions of times better smell than we do. Yeah, well, they certainly have millions more receptors in their nose. So it seems possible that they then smell exponentially more things. And it is their primary sense. They certainly have decent vision. But more of their brain is committed to olfaction than vision, which is the reverse for us. So, yeah, when I followed Finnegan's nose, which is really a little bit watching his nose, but seeing where his nose leads him, which, like my with my toddler, was hard because <laughs> he's used to being directed by me. You just see that the world could also be described, the walk around the block could also be described as full of sense, not just full of scenes. Mm-hmm. And I think... As a city dweller, we sometimes don't want to smell whatever is on the block. But there, for dogs, there's lots of information in it. I don't think they're mm-hmm. putting a judgment on it. It's just this is information about someone or something that has passed. And it might be biological information. It might be information that, about something to eat. It's just information about the new scene that they've confronted on the street. In several of these stories, whether it's Dr. Lorber, the diagnostician, or Finnegan, your dog, Finnegan has to really sniff. Dr. Lauber potentially could also sniff. In a human term, it's a little bit invasive. Mm. You know, obviously, when you're walking, when you're living your life, you're not going to go close up to someone and sniff them. It's we're, funny. Why does that seem like such a violation, right? right. But, but is you know, we're giving off smell all the right. time, right. so... It's not like we're keeping it to ourselves <laughs> right. or spreading it around. Yeah. But I agree, right? It's, it's an active thing to sniff. Yeah. And that's why we, we're happy we can turn it off most of the time. And we can also go half our day without smelling anything in particular. Right. Um, so it's kind of like staring. We, we look, but we, we know we shouldn't stare. That's right. Well, you can look at something without really seeing it, right? Without yeah. bringing that full attention. And I thought about this when I was seeing what F- Finnegan must see smell in all this <laughs> scent information from another dog. Right. I looked at the woman holding the leash at the other end um, of this dog and thought, oh, well, I wonder what I could get by sort of getting close to her. Right. And you do sometimes get some waft of shampooed hair or mm-hmm. so, you know, everybody over colognes or perfumes or something, which is not that much information, but a little bit of information. Right. Cigarette and smokers. Tell absolutely. Us now that's so profound now right. that there's so many fewer cigarette smokers right. in this city. I don't think it would be intrusive to do it. I just think we're not accustomed to doing it. Right. And so it's not yet socially part of the game. Right. It may not change too <laughs> it soon. It might not change too soon, right? But as a doctor, I thought that was a really yeah. interesting element that physicians used to not have as many tools at hand. Mm-hmm. And so they used the tools they had. And one of mm-hmm. our tools is our nose. And, and there are all sorts of diseases that can be detected by scent, mm-hmm. right? Tuberculosis and typhoid and coughs and different 
lung diseases. Right. And wow, it's interesting to me that that, that people used to be trained in that, and right. that's it's really falling out of favor. Well, even in the the way that you described what those symptoms smelled like. A lot of them, I didn't know what those smells were. I mean, mm. they were kind of weather smells, but very specific, much more specific than I'm aware of. So we've obviously because of kind the of, time, yeah, it would have been something that more people knew about. The one yeah. of the descriptions of the smell of lunatics. This was a 19th century <laughs> description. I think lunatics smelled like yellow deer or mice. They said, <laughs> and I'm really not sure what yellow deer or mice smell like. <laughs> right, but at the right. time, maybe yeah. that also was something that people were aware of. Right. They were omnipresent, and yeah. and so that was sufficiently an indication, right? And we've really retreated from that, and now we, you know, we kind of airbrush our sen- yeah. uh, olfactory environment, and I'm not sure that I love that. Right, exactly. Now, just one final question. Having done all of this, having written the book, do you attend to things differently now? I do, much of the time. I do certainly walk quickly through the city <laughs> right. when I need to. But And I really appreciate these particular experts, um, but the other people I walked with as well, they're bringing my attention to some of them. So I, walking down here, I was looking at you know lettering, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is very enjoyable or ridiculous mm. or poorly done or well done and even at that gross level I really appreciate it and and even simple things like looking at the asphalt on the street and how it's breaking up I notice that now I didn't yeah. used to notice yeah. things like that and so there's always something rich to look at if I choose to turn my mind to it um, and I'd say I do every day kind of gives me an idea you know I have friends who are for example costumers I've often walked with them, but I've never said, tell me what you see, because you're very attuned to... Ah, that would be a great person to walk with, right, because, of course, we say a lot with our clothes, and people who are attuned to that have a lot of information and opinions about what everybody's clothes is saying about them, and... I wouldn't necessarily want to be the subject of that (laughs) (laughs) diagnosis, but nonetheless, it would be interesting, yeah. Yeah. That was Alexander Horowitz, whose new book, On Looking, 11 Walks with Expert Eyes, is available in bookstores now. Thank you so much, Alexander. My pleasure. Thanks, Jim. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.